for thousands and thousands of years, people in various languages and in various countries and various situations have all, and, and it doesn't necessarily even have to be Buddhist, really. It's a human thing. You know, we as humans uh, have always <clears throat> tried to understand as deeply as we could what this miracle of existence, of beingness, is about because it is inconceivable. <laughs> and what really is it to be alive? What does it that mean? Does it even have to have meaning? <laughs> it's only, <laughs> in a way, it's only in our humanness that we even think that it needs to have some kind of meaning in some way. I do feel, though, that um, I actually, I suppose, feel rather deeply that the particular lineage of Buddhism <clears throat> that we practice here, Buddhism in general, that we practice here, and Zen Buddhism is um, really good. <laughs> it's very accurate in pointing to the uh, miracle of life as it is, as it has come to be, as it is. Suzuki Roshi said this once. He said, um, life is enough. Life is a miracle. Life is enough. You know, what more? What more are we looking for? Well, you know, we can debate that. Because, because usually, you know, mostly the life we lead and how we react to things and how we feel closed off and not connected. We know that there's something deeper. We know that there, there is the possibility of touching life in a kind of intimacy that poets speak about, certainly people who are awake talk about. In music, we can reach. In art, we can know it. In the forest, we touch that silence. You know, the Native American people send their youth. I think only the guys. Why? You know? <laughs> um, out into the forest or the land or wherever it is that they find themselves for three days alone, you know, with the tigers and lions and bears, possible. Or really, you can say, just like the Buddha did under the tree, you know, Mara and the doubts and the, the um, temptations, you know, and the, the mind, really, the lions and tigers and bears. This is the mind of the young person sitting out there alone, without food, without water, to find their, uh, whatever it is for that culture. It could be an ally, could be a dream, could be a name. Or for some of those people, the medicine people, the people who end up being the medicine people of that group, they find their response 
from the universe, and the universe is responding all the time. We just don't hear it. We don't hear it because there's a lot of noise. That person did it. I want that. I don't want that. I don't want that noise. I want that. And you know, there's nothing wrong with those comments. Whatever they are, there's nothing wrong with it. They're just painful. <laughs> they just keep us disconnected from our own truth, from our own true nature. So we walk a path with other people with the help of the teachings that are pointers, not themselves the truth, but are pointing something, pointing at something beyond the conceptual mind that we can all know, that we all do all know. And then, you know, if we're lucky, we meet. We meet it. And it's a mirror. It is what we are. And we wake up to our own aliveness. Oh, we wake up to our own death. The death of this burden, you know, this burden that we carry so heavy, we put it down. This burden of me, this burden of I, me, mine. I, me, mine. I, me, mine. I, me, mine. I, me, I, mine. I, my, I. My, me, my. Mimi. <laughs> mm. It's not funny. And so for all of these thousands of years, the people who are guides come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. And uh, originally in Buddhism, we had Buddha, Siddhartha, Gautama. And we had ordained people, and there were also lay people. And through various kinds of permutations in various cultures and so on and so forth, we have come that what has come down to us is a system, because religions, you know, turn into systems and stuff. And what we have is uh, priests and lay people. What did I want to say? Wait.
And I am of the opinion, I am of, I feel strongly about this, actually. I feel strongly that because of the way Buddhism came to the United States, I'm going to give you a little bit of history, if you don't mind. Because of the way Buddhism came to the United States, <clears throat> and in particular Soto Zen Buddhism came to the United States, um, we have priests that look like lay people, and we have lay people that look like priests. And Suzuki Roshi, a long time ago, said this very thing. He said, I know, let's see, how did he put it? I know that you, that so, I know that some of you are priests. I understand that some of you will, are priests. And I see that some of you who are lay people are, look like, he didn't say it this way, I'm paraphrasing, look like, for him it was monks, really, because we were all practicing at Tassajara. So we all look like monks, whether we were priests or lay people. And what he said was, this is what I want to tell you, what he said was, you guys have to figure that out. So what I, here, so what I want to say is, when Buddhism came to the West, when, it, when Buddhism comes to any um, new country, it adapts and changes and is, creates and turns into something that is appropriate for that, for that country and culture so that the teachings can be heard, mostly, in a way that will be approachable. So in the West, what happened for Buddhism, which I think is really terrific, the first thing that happened was that men and women practiced together equally. And Suzuki Roshi was one of the main people that did this. Because when he set up Tassajara, immediately he set it up with men and women practicing together. Unheard of in Japan. Completely radical. So I feel if I do anything that looks radical, then I'm okay because I'm in Sukiroshi's lineage. <laughs> so that was one thing that happened. And then another thing that happened was we have the chance of the, a, a really deep richness of diversity, which is an addition from the West. Because if you go to the East, there's less diversity in that way. So in the United States, it's a fabulous opportunity. I'm talking, by the way, about Western, you know, Western, what's it called? Western, Western people, Western Buddhism. Because there's a huge tradition of cultural Buddhism that also came to the United States with um, Tibetan people, with Thai people, with people who are Burmese in the United States. This is their culture. They have, they have none of these issues. <laughs> these issues are for how Buddhism came to the West and what the new Western people took it up. That's what I'm talking about. Converts. What? Converts. Converts. Yes, that's right. We're converts. Right, exactly. Right. Newbies. <laughs> Right, we're converts, that's right. We're all converts. That's so cool. <laughs> Where was I? So diversity, 
men and women equal psychology. We have a wonderful tradition of psychological vocabulary and understanding, especially around the initial um, beginning practice of Buddhism. It looks very much like psychology, and we have a lot of good, rich uh, knowledge around right psychology. And, yeah, why, why? I'm listening. Oh. <laughs> You're my authority there. Yeah, you have to go like this. <laughs> I was waiting for this. <laughs> and then another thing was oh, and then so this other thing is really interesting. Ninety percent of the people who practice, and certainly. 95% maybe of the people who will be practicing Buddhism in the West, not even Zen Buddhism, Buddhism in the West, are going to be lay people. So this is extremely interesting, and I will tell you why. But I have to look at my notes first. This is how it got to be that way. And now I'm going to tell you about some other lineages and what is wonderful about them and not wonderful about them. But maybe I will do that later. No, I'll do it now. <coughs> I'm, let's see, I'm doing this so that you have a context. Okay? So there are three main practice lineages, and by practice lineages, I mean lineages that are, that emphasize meditation, basically, and a transfer, an awakening, transformation from delusion to, to seeing clearly things as they've come to be. Well, okay, that's one way of putting it. Um, they are, uh, from the Theravadan tradition in the United States, it's called Vipassana. Do you understand what I, you all understand this, right? I'm reviewing for most of you, right? Vipassana. Vipassana is also called insight meditation. Um, wonderful, wonderful lineage from uh, up there is uh, Insight Meditation Center, where they do three-month retreats. And Sharon started that. Sharon and Jack and Joseph started that. Sharon and Joseph stayed there, and Jack started um, Spirit Rock in California. There are also other lineages, Goenka lineage, and um, now we have some other lineages as well, some from Burma as well as Thailand. The, I'm going to, let's see, the wonderfulness, I'm going to, should I say the wonderfulness? They're wonderful. The difficulty that they have is, is that it's really, they have had a hard time certainly fully ordaining women. Matter of fact, the one Theravadan master who ordained, fully ordained, I think two or three nuns now, is in Australia by the name of, his name starts with a B, Baum or Bon, I forgot his name. 
And he got excommunicated by the Thai church, got excommunicated, which is a huge thing for them because they, that's where they get their money. So he did an extraordinary thing with a lot of risk. <coughs> so that's one of their difficulties that they're working on. And the other one is they have had difficulty helping people realize that the practice is not just when you go to a retreat. You go to retreat and then you bring that into your daily life. And that is also practice. Then the another Buddhist lineage that came is Tibetan Buddhist lineage. The first one of those who came, I'm pretty sure it was Trungpa first. Kala Rinpoche uh, came very closely after that, I believe. But Trungpa was really the first one and huge risk. And he saw right away that most of the people were going to be lay people. So he took off his robes. And as soon as he took off his robes, he was excommunicated, basically. They wouldn't support him either until many years later when the Karmapa came. Right? And then when they saw how effective he was, he was a brilliant teacher anyway, then they started to support him, but not before, right? Fabulous lineage, extremely effective, just amazing, amazing teachers. But the problem also is they have problem fully ordaining women. And <laughs> what can you say? And um, oh, and it's really difficult for them to recognize Western teachers as really deeply uh, awake and able to teach, wouldn't you say so? And of course, you know, everybody's working all this stuff. They're figuring it out. Then, um, not then, first, before these two came, Zen came. And came uh, pretty much the first practicing lineage that came was Suzuki Roshi. And established the first monastery in the West at Tassajara. And the Zens didn't exactly split into two because Mayazumi well, thinks of himself and that lineage thinks of themselves as Soto and Rinzai. I think of them more as Rinzai than Soto, but yes, wonderful. And that's where I started, and I have feelings. But <laughs> Because anybody, you know, all institutions, you know, have their wonderfulness and also things that are. Um, oh, that was an interesting word. It was despicable. I haven't, I haven't <laughs> used that word in a long time. Um, the difficulty about Zen, about Rinzai Zen, is Rinzai Zen, which is also a wonderful lineage. Um, John Tarrant is that lineage the guy in Nevada City, Gary, is that lineage, and also the guy who wrote um, uh, Stream, the Streams book. What's his name? Uh, no, that's it. Dido Lori's lineage is a lay lineage. That's what I'm getting to. Um, anyway, great book on koans and stuff. But that, the difficulty with that is for people who have a tendency to to want to get enlightened, it starts very dualistic. So people who are 
have, have a sense of themselves as failures. It's a setup. Actually, that's why, for me, it was despicable. It was my own thing. And that was my setup. So I you know, banged against this wall of enlightenment for six years. I'm very stubborn. <laughs> six years before I gave up. It's incredible. Um, <clears throat> and Soto Zen came, and the difficulty with Soto Zen, which is our lineage, is you can, unless you have a really relationship with a teacher, you can spend a lot of years in meditation thinking that you're sort of present and doing it and so on, but really it's a kind of a foggy presence, even sometimes with thoughts in the background, but you're kind of sort of present. and It's non-dualistic from the start, but we don't tell you anything unless you have a relationship with a teacher who is guiding you. <clears throat> oh, thank you. So the other thing that we have difficulty with is because, now I'm going to tell you this is a fun history. I think it's a fun history. The um, Buddhism in Japan became very, the church, just like the church, the Catholic Church in the West became very strong when it connected with Rome in the early period of Catholicism. It became the universal church as soon as it, it melded with uh, the Roman Empire. If I say anything wrong in history and you guys know better than I do, just tell me, okay? Do you what? Did the same thing happen there with them? They wouldn't go with Rome. They wouldn't go with Rome. So they stayed in their own Eastern Orthodox. <laughs> yes. Um, so in the Tokugawa period in Japan, Buddhism, which had become really very wealthy and so on, connected with the Tokugawa and became um, corrupt in the same way that um, Luther was noticing that you can buy, you know, heaven when Luther started his thing. Which Luther, did you know that Luther was a real anti-Semite? Did you know that? I just found that out the other day. Shocking. <laughs> um, so in that same way, in the Tokugawa period and the early Meiji, uh, Buddhism became very connected with the state and it became corrupted, and so when the, am I pronouncing that right, Meiji, 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 period, they wanted to undermine the Buddhist church and the priests of the Buddhist church. They were monks at that time, not priests, monks. And what they told them to do was they told them they had to get married. No more celibate, had to marry. Now, interestingly enough, because the women, the nuns, didn't have any power anyway. <laughs> they didn't tell the nuns to get married. So we still have a fully ordained female lineage in Japan for if you want to be a nun. But if you want to be a priest in the, are you guys following me? Is this making sense? Okay, if you want to be a priest, um, you can marry if you want to in the, in, the, in the Soto Zen tradition. And that's what came to the West. Fascinating. 
So the question is, for us now, the question is, what exactly is a priest? Because if it looks, if it looks like a lay person and it acts like a lay person, <laughs> in the West, it's a lay person, <laughs> right? And that's why Greg is, if I may say, you're going to wait until what I say to tell me whether it's okay? Because <laughs> you don't know. Okay. Greg is really clear, and it's something that I really respect about you. You're very clear. <clears throat> there are real things that a priest ought to be, to know before they become a priest what they're signing up for. And I appreciate that clarity, because I grew up in San Francisco Zen Center, where if it acts like a layperson, right, it's a layperson wearing robes, to me, <laughs> anyway. Um, so now I'm going to say something a little bit personal. So for me, when I see all of you guys who are laypeople, except a few of us who are priests, which is a wonderful thing. So everything I'm going to say, don't think that I'm in any way undermining the life of a priest, because that's uh, me. So, <laughs> so um, but when I looked out at most of the people who are practicing, they're not priests. You guys are lay people. And I know a lot of number of lay people who are wonderful in their practice, deep in their practice, and perfectly capable of holding out their hand and bringing other people across. And so I feel rather strongly, if most of the people are going to be lay people, then why don't we completely recognize and confirm and acknowledge lay people as a legitimate path, completely legitimate practice opportunity. So I wrote a thing for, to the elders in San Francisco Zen Center about this very topic, because I think it's something that San Francisco Zen Center should talk about. They should clarify what they think a priest is in the first place, and, ooh, that was my first should of the day. <laughs> This is my second. And they should <laughs> recognize fully a lay path. So one of the things that I've been doing, which we're going to do tomorrow with Laura, is we're going to recognize Laura as a teacher, as a lay teacher in this path, which is perfectly appropriate. So I hope that you all, you know, come and support the ceremony that we're going to, that we're going to, for heaven's sakes, how does that happen? What was I saying? Come tomorrow. Is that what I'm saying? Come tomorrow <clears throat> and stay 
for this wonderful ceremony that we're going to have that will recognize Laura in an approach. She will take her seat as a teacher in our community and as one of the people who, in my mind, is an appropriate person as a teacher, as a lay teacher in our path, in a Soto Zen path. Um, now I'm treading, I'm making a joke, but I'm treading on dangerous waters here. <laughs> You'll help me with this. Um, we are all bodhisattvas. We are all people, I believe, who are wanting to alleviate suffering in this world. I bet you that's every single person here. And the more we practice, <clears throat> and as we walk on this path, in some way, the more we are willing to do that, the more we are make, willing to make that conscious, and even at some point make vows about uh, wanting to alleviate suffering in the world. I guess I, I guess that's it. Because if I say any more, I'm gonna, I can't figure out how to go forward. You want to help me here? What do you want to say? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to make a distinction between. Um, I want, I want, I want us to all know that our path <laughs> as Soto Zen. People are even, not even Soto Zen, the path of Buddhism is a bodhisattva path. It got clarified in that way with Soto Zen. We, as we took 16, they're called bodhisattva precepts. But there's also these four vows that we say regularly, even in our community. And I just wanted to emphasize that a little bit so you'll hear Laura say those vows tomorrow during that ceremony. Um, oh, let me say this. Um, being a bodhisattva is very interesting. Um, as we practice, this is for everybody in general, as we practice this path, there comes a time when you no longer make suffering for yourself that we really do, I think, and I don't know if it's true for everybody, but I, I do feel this way, that we have to put ourselves in situations that will mirror us in a more, uh, in a mirror, that will mirror us, period, because we're not making suffering for ourselves anymore. We need to see where we're holding, where we are creating, or, uh, you know, identities or images about ourselves. We need to put ourselves in situations that will continue to mirror us. And I feel like one of the ways that we do that is by um, uh, teaching, basically. Just putting yourself in a situation where you're responsible for other people. It's a huge mirror for yourself. So in a way, you know, um, it's a kind of a, it's a both a wonderful gift and an offering, but it's also a little bit selfish, you know, because uh, at some point, um, making other people 
the re reason I hesitate this is because, you know, in the in the beginning, sometimes of a person suffering, when you um, are when you put yourself in a situation like of a like like a uh, what am I trying to say here? You know, when you're like doing things for others all the time and you kind of burn out because there's no boundaries, right? And you turn into a victim and so on and so forth. This is not what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> Um, what I'm trying to say is that you, you really do offer yourself. It's no longer your life. You offer yourself as this bodhisattva person, and in this selfish way, in a sense, because you have a tremendous mirror, but you're offering yourself to bring everyone to the other shore. There is no other shore, but... <laughs> Sometimes we say it that way. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is that being a bodhisattva person and taking these vows is an important step in your own practice. Not just because it's a you know, bodhisattva, great thing, you know, offer your arm to a tiger, that kind of thing. That's a, that's a Buddha story. Did you know that? That's a Jataka tale. So it's a, in a way, it's selfless because that's kind of where you're at. All right, never mind. <laughs> I'm getting myself into a little bit of trouble. What am I trying to say here? It's also a step on the path to offer yourself in that way. I think it's a necessary step on the path. So tomorrow we're going to have this ceremony, and I think it's going to be a really lovely ceremony, and I, I think everybody here is going to come. I hope you do. Um, there's some people that we've asked to ask questions, and for those people, I hope that your question is geared toward helping Laura bring out her voice. It's not like this antagonistic thing, but it needs to be a question that is alive for you, right? Alive for you but to help her come forward. We want to have a, a ceremony that's intimate and authentic. Okay? We're not asking anybody to be a perfect person. We want the person to kind of show who they are, to be who they are. And that's what your questions are, to help that happen. Okay? Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.